Welcome to Slow News Day with Kevin Clark. I am Kevin Clark. Woo! Great show, Slow News Fridays. Austin Gale joins me to pick pro and college games. We get a little bit to the signings of Linval Joseph and Dominican Sue for the Philadelphia Eagles. Pick five games, then five college games, and then a World Cup preview with Rhino Hanlon from ESPN, former ringer editor. Really great discussion. I learned a ton. I haven't been as up on soccer as I normally am, so I basically had him get me up to speed. You'll get up to speed. Really fascinating discussion. Let's get to Austin. All right, Austin Gale, I believe it's our first podcast together, buddy. What's going on? I, I'm loving it, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm upset that I don't get to get the beginning because when I listen to Slow News Day, my favorite yeah. part of it, listening on two, 2X, is you saying, welcome to Slow News Day with Kevin Clark. This is Kevin Clark. I love that intro every single time. It hits my ears. I'm like, I'm ready to rip and roar because I love you saying it's with Kevin Clark by Kevin Clark. But I, I guess I'm on the midway point here, so I don't, I, don't get to, I don't get to hear it from the horse's mouth here. You're, first time, you're, you're the first guest. I will say we have a content problem if the best part of the episode is in the first three seconds. We got to workshop that, buddy. It's, we got to workshop it's true. that. I, I, I've been waiting for you to ask me for feedback. I got feedback on Slow News Day. I think the first 30 seconds is the primo comp- component of it. on a loop? Just on a loop? On over a loop. and over again? <laughs> Welcome to Slow News Day with Kevin Clark. Yeah. I'm Kevin Clark. Oh, it's just so nice. I like it. I, I can't, I can't, you know, I host a couple podcasts here at The Ringer. I don't have an intro that's sexy. I, I, I need to well, rip it up. I need to be a little bit That's on you, brother. I do think you're an <laughs> imposter. You're not wearing a low crown baseball hat. You are not wearing a sweater in 90 degree weather. It appears hot in Los Angeles today. Um, the first time I ever met you in person, we were in Cincinnati. I was just swinging by the PFF offices to see the fellas. And, uh, and you came out and had a beer with us. And uh, boy, you were overdressed. Way overdressed. I, I, I love the low crown baseball hat. I think I'm going to use that moving forward. And I, I, don't fr- I don't shy away from a sweater. You know, long sleeves inside. I'm not against it. I'm wearing long sleeves now. This is a little bit lighter. But uh, now that I'm in L.A., the sweaters are gone, dude. This the, the weather never gets under 60 degrees, even 55 degrees. I was outside out of my apartment recently, just kind of like walking back from the office, and someone said, man, it's getting cold outside. It's like 55 degrees. It's like, no, it's not. It's not. Cincinnati, it gets to like 30 degrees at this time. It's snowing, all that stuff. I'm, I'm living the dream out here in LA. Bro, you get close to the ocean, you can have all the sweaters you want. Go to Santa Monica. Hoodie it's up. True. It's true. I could hoodie up. I could hoodie up. Um, all right, so let's get. We're gonna pick a bunch of college games and bench pro games. Start with the pro games because this is a pro football podcast. Um, let's start. Drum roll, please. With Eagles Colts, there's some breaking news. Eagles, by the way, seven point favorites on the road. There's some breaking news, and Dominican Sue is now a Philadelphia Eagle. And I don't want to. I listen. I don't want to. I don't want to understate this or overstate this. Okay. But I saw some of the tweets today and some of the instant analysis that was like, well, you can pack up the NFC. Just relax on the Indomitian Sioux signing. I'm sure it's a positive. It's really good. They, they were, they were, you know, Linval Joseph was in the mix there. They were thin on the interior. I get it. Indomitian Sioux has been really good for a long time. There's this thing now. You can almost like call it the Carmelo Anthony zone. Remember when every like breathlessly on the jump every day, it was like, where's Carmelo going to sign? Well, he's been on like five teams in the past four years. So like, I think he, his skills might be a little bit diminished here. So I just something to watch there. Julio Jones is on that too. Where it's like breathlessly. What's Julio going to do? Well, he's going to sign with a team that calls him and offers him a contract. So you're reporting it weirdly. Um, and then even like, the, the best version of that right now is Odell Beckham, where it's like we're treating Odell Beckham like it's LeBron, and it's like, let's just take it easy. So Indomitian Sioux signing on November 17th, uh, good, but let's, let's pump the brakes here a little bit. Uh, what do you got in this game, Austin Gale? 
What what's interesting about the Ndamukong Su signing is I think it was Ian Rappaport who tweeted out he was going to the Eagles and he said the rich get richer. It's like, dude, signing Ndamukong Su off the street is not necessarily getting richer. I know he's been a dominant. Could player, we have, could the ringer have done that like a month <laughs> I ago? I think so. Could we I have put so. a package together to get Ndamukong Su podcasting for us? I think so. And guess what that would have been? The rich getting richer. But obviously for the Eagles, after that game and after the last few games where Jordan Davis hasn't been able to suit up, they've had Marvin Wilson, who's a former UDFA um, that has out of Florida State, has struggled to see the field in the NFL that he's been playing at the center of that defense and really struggling to two-gap like they ask him to. So they're trying to get beef. They, you know, talked to Limbaugh Joseph and Ndamukong Su, obviously went for Ndamukong Su, trying to get better along the defensive line. I wouldn't necessarily frame that as the rich getting richer. It's just they have a problem area right now, obviously, in the interior defensive line and want to get better in that area and think Ndamukong Su can get there. What's interesting about this game is I looked at the initial spread, which it's been at seven, six and a half. Uh, if you look on FanDuel right now, it's at six and a half. Eagles favored. A lot of the cash on this game early line is on the Colts. I think according to PFF, 77% of the cash bet on this game is on the Colts at plus six and a half. So I don't think this game doesn't get through seven, in my opinion, by the time the market closes. I would be surprised if the Eagles are favored by seven, seven and a half by the time the market closes. I don't know how you back the Colts in this area, though. I don't know how you back the Colts. Yes, coming off a big win over the Las Vegas Raiders where they were what? They were six and a half point dogs to open and then five, then four. Money came on the Colts more and more. I think that was because rumors were happening that Matt Ryan was going to replace a bad quarterback. You know, don't I don't know if you tip your cap necessarily to Jeff Saturday as much as him recognizing Matt Ryan's a better quarterback than Sam Ellinger. We're going to start him, and obviously Jonathan Taylor was healthy for that game. Those were bigger differences than obviously Saturday coming in there and banging the table and, and bringing energy. Now that edge is gone, right? Knowing that Matt Ryan's in this game, Eagles are obviously going to prepare for that, and coming off a loss that they shouldn't have had, a loss that I'm sure now leads them in a spot where they're looking for revenge quite quickly and looking to flush that one quite quickly. I'm staying away from the Colts at six and a half, and I'm probably going to take what looks like a square bet because you're getting right over the key number at seven, probably taking the Eagles minus six and a half on the road. Taking the Eagles too. a couple things. Number one, congrats to Jeff Saturday for letting the Raiders implode. That, that Seriously, like that that's a skill. Like, let's go Napoleon here. Never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake, right? The Raiders, I think they would have lost to anybody. They would have lost to Middle Tennessee State last week. Like they're they're just <laughs> they were waiting to lose. And now, you know, Derek Carr is questioning the effort. Looks like Derek Carr may not be around for very long. Mark Davis had to do the Rome wasn't built in a day thing, which is true. But like Josh McDaniels wasn't in charge of building Rome. Rome got built. Okay. <laughs> um, so I I I don't know what's going on there. A couple things about the Colts. Number one, obviously broke a three-game skid. Matt Ryan's better than, than Big Sam. 415 yards total offense. Good. All of this was an improvement. The Eagles were sloppy against the Commanders. Four turnovers. They hadn't had more than one previously. And one of, the, one of those was a face mask. I understand that, but they still would have had three. Would have been a season high. They've forced multiple turnovers in four straight games. That, to me, is more likely to continue than the four turnovers being committed. Matt Ryan back there against the Eagles defensive line. Like, that's... That's serious. Are you kidding me? Like in his first five games, Matt Ryan fumbled 11 times. That's the trend I think will continue. Um, they can get after the quarterback. They will. I think I, I, I think Matt Ryan might be a bit of a sitting duck. I don't believe in the Jeff Saturday bump lasting more than one week. For me, the, the biggest statistic that I think is you know, emblematic of how Matt Ryan has played this year is looking at EPA per dropback when kept clean. So when kept clean from mm-hmm. pressure, which hasn't been a lot this season. Obviously, the Colts offensive line right. going through a lot of concerns. Chris Ballard calling out the offensive line in that press conference a few weeks ago. He knows how bad the offensive line is. 
when he isn't pressured on the you know, 50, 60% of dropbacks he isn't, he's at eighth in EPA per attempt. When he is pressured, he's 33rd, worse than the NFL. And he has really struggled to handle pressure in Indianapolis. That's not comfort- that, That's him not having comfortability in this offense, not having a receiving core that's adjusting on scramble drills, and him not being a scrambler himself. And Benjamin Solak, analyst here at The Ringer, wrote a piece about why Who? you could think that? <laughs> Ben Solak, my guy, uh-huh. he, he, he wrote a piece after the Colts made the decision, I think specifically Ursay made the decision to bench Matt Ryan about how you could rationalize it, right? Sam Ellinger comes in, he's a better scrambler, more athletic than what Matt Ryan is right now. That could help mitigate some of these concerns. One of the biggest negative EPA plays in the NFL is taking a sack. One of the most positive is scrambling for positive yards. You thought you could get that in Ellinger, and he just didn't have it. Didn't have confidence, didn't know what he was seeing out there. There are some times where his eyes are immediately dropping as soon as the snap is happening. They had to pull the plug on that. Matt Ryan's back. Pressure looked good. You know, he was not under pressure, under constant pressure, at least, against the Las Vegas Raiders last week, and you saw positive Matt Ryan. I don't think that's the case against Philly. I think he's going to be under pressure more, and you're going to see the same Matt Ryan that got benched early parts of the season, and that's why, as as square as it looks, right, anytime you're betting a minus 6.5 and, and and feeling like, oh, man, I'm getting right over that key number, it does often look like a public kind of square bet. I, I, I do like it this week on the road. By the way, shout out Ben Solak, shout out Stephen Ruiz, shout out Nora for getting shouted out by Mina Kimes on the on the uh, Sports Dude, Business Journal New York Post that, podcast. Man. How about that? They came out. I, that was somebody, that was pretty sick. I somebody tagged me. Mina's one of my best friends in, in media. Somebody tagged me and was like, "Well, why aren't you listed?" And I had didn't have the heart to tell them that Mina and I are the same age, or Mina thinks I'm bad. Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. The bad, but no, no, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's probably the bad. I think it's definitely the bad. Definitely the bad. Um, all right, so. I'm, we're both picking the Eagles in this one. Uh, I just don't. Yep. I think the Colts. The, the Colts might completely fall apart. There may have been a running on adrenaline situation. Like you know how when you land, you know when you're jet lagged and you just have a day where you're just feeling amazing and you're you're just like, oh, I'm cooking right now. I'm in Paris. I'm in London. Let's go. Let's go to a fucking museum. Like that was them. That was the Colts last week. And now, boy, <laughs> they're just realizing Jeff Saturday is their coach. Um. All right. Jeff I also Pats. think that it was a sneaky. It was a sneaky Gus Bradley revenge game. People didn't talk about that because obviously Jeff oh, Saturday Jesus was drawing Christ. headlines. No, you know, what? you know why Gus... people didn't talk about it? Because it was a Gus Bradley sneaky revenge game you're trying to get people to talk about. Fair, Gee, fair I wonder why nobody talked about it, Austin Gale. But look at, okay, um, go back and watch the game. Go back and watch the game specifically. Long second downs, long third downs. Bracket coverage over Devontae Adams, forcing him to go to Foster Moreau time and time again on money down. Something Derek Carr, Josh McDaniels doesn't want to do. Bradley was in his bag. Can I say it? Bradley was in his bag. I, I, I liked I liked the Colts defense there. All right. Jets, Pats. Pats, three-point favorites at home. What do you got? This is a, a really interesting game. If you're looking at kind of playoff projections, I think 538 has a model now that says if the Patriots lose this game, their playoff odds tank into, I think, under 15%. But if they win this game, they clear 55% in probability. That's obviously getting a win over a division opponent and obviously extending their record. With the Jets, less of a swing, but still a pretty significant game if they're you know, planning to go to the postseason. If they lose, I think their their playoff odds go to close to 40%. If they win, I think they're clearing 60-70% odds to make the playoffs. So this is not a playoff game for either team, but a must-win game probably for the New England Patriots and a win that would push the New York Jets into a hard time of even regardless of how the schedule ends, them missing the playoffs. So I think this is a must-watch game this week. Patriots favored by three. Three and a half in some spots, but I think most spots have it at three. What's interesting about this game is... The Patriots were favored by three a few weeks ago when they played the Jets on the road. Patriots by three. Now the Patriots at home in Foxborough, and the number's the same. That, to me, 
shows a market that is devaluing the Patriots at this spot for whatever reason. My reason, Mac Jones stinks. Mac Jones has been worse than what Zach Wilson has been over the last few weeks. I think the media has targeted Wilson more for whatever reason, maybe because the Jets weren't expected to get to this level. But Mac Jones, of all quarterbacks in the NFL, with at least 150 dropbacks this year, is the lowest-ranked quarterback in e-paper dropback. There are only two quarterbacks in the league averaging negative e-paper attempts when targeting beyond the sticks. Kenny Pickett, a rookie in Pittsburgh, quarterbacking one of the worst offenses in the NFL, and Mac Jones, also quarterbacking one of the worst offenses in the NFL. And when you look at what Zach Wilson did against the Buffalo Bills, it was his lowest average time to throw in a start we've seen in over a year. And you saw a quarterback that did not make a ton of mistakes because he wasn't scrambling out of the pocket, wasn't trying to throw a ball away and then accidentally throwing a pick. He was getting the ball out quickly and limiting turnovers in that regard. I trust that offense again against the Patriots more than I do Mac Jones, Joe Judge, Matt Patricia all getting in the room and getting something better here. Because I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think Mac Jones is playing with confidence. I don't think Patricia and Judge are instilling that. Whereas LaFleur, against a really good Buffalo Bills defense, said, hey, you're not scrambling this week. We're not getting you out of the pocket. You're going to fucking sit back there and you're going to throw the ball on your drop and you're not going to make any mistakes. And it worked, right? It worked. The offense wasn't great. He wasn't elite by any means, thrown for over 300 yards and three touchdowns, but he wasn't making mistakes. I just think I trust that offensive shift in philosophy by LaFleur and Wilson to have him survive this game and potentially win. Because Mac Jones played as bad, if not worse, in that Patriots-Jets games a few weeks ago. The problem was Zach Wilson just threw more picks, right? Zach Wilson threw more interceptions, and that ultimately gave the Patriots an opportunity to win that game. I think it was 22-17 a couple weeks ago. I think it's a little bit different here. I, I like Jets plus three. I'll probably sprinkle a little bit on the money line. Yes, they're on the road. Yes, the Patriots' backs are relatively against the wall. But I'm probably leaning Jets here. I, I I really do like that shift that they made before the bye week, and I think they're going to continue to lean mm-hmm. into that coming out of the bye. So Belichick had a quote this week about the scheme under Robert Sally. He said, the Jets are the Jets. They have their own way of doing things. Right now, the Jets are the Jets. I have a lot of Jets fans in my life and or in my social media feed, wherever. And to a man, they were all like, oh, Belichick. We're in Belichick's head because normally he'd overpraise <laughs> us. And I'm like, I don't, I think he was just didn't want to talk about it. And we're just dismissing it. Like, I don't think you can read too much into Bill. Bell. Like he said, he will say, we'll see how it goes with whether it's like the 90th guy they signed for training camp or like they just signed like Tom Brady again. He'll just be like, well, we'll see how it goes. You know, thought, thought it'd be worth a look. Like, I don't think we can look too, too closely into it. Okay. The key here is... I think that there was a quote a couple weeks ago from the from the Jets coaching staff. I don't know if Robert Sauer or Michael Fleur was basically like, Zach Wilson, a throwaway is a good play. A throwaway is a yes. good play. Learn how to do it when trying to do too much is always going to be a problem. Trent Dover's been on Russell a million times saying, Zach Wilson, learn to take the layups. I'd actually like go even more dramatic than that. Just learn how to do nothing. Learn how to do nothing. Don't even try to do the layups. Just do the Ben Simmons. Just do the Ben Simmons go up and come back down because you're afraid to shoot. That would be preferable to some of the throws he had a couple of weeks ago against the Patriots. Throw the ball away. Belichick's coming off a bye. He's going to have a plan for Zach Wilson. He's going to have a plan to let him see ghosts. Don't let him do anything. Zach Wilson's won five of his six starts. In his last three wins, he didn't get over 200 yards passing. Dink and dunk to win, but if there's nothing, just get sacked. That's fine. Let your defense do things. Let Mac Jones make the mistakes. They know what they don't know, I think, on offense. The Patriots are 24th in rush defense per attempt. Don't screw this up. If the Jets play the way I know they can play, they're going to win this game. I'm taking the Jets on the road. I'm glad we're in agreement. And I think think you bring up a good point in that the layups comment is... 
I think Lafleur in this Jets offense was trying to give him layups, yes. right? Trying to give him layups, trying to, you know, have a quick passing game, get the ball out quickly. But he was adamant that when pressure hits, he could scramble out of it and he can make plays with his feet and he can extend plays. Go back and watch that Patriots game. You even just have to watch the picks. He's scrambling out, throws it into triple coverage, and it's picked. And it's like, this isn't the offense. You aren't that guy. You're not him. You're not, you're not him. You need to be you're not a guy him. that's taking the <laughs> You're not him. Take the you're layups. Not that guy. Throw the hey, ball pal, away. Zach Wilson, you are not that guy. <laughs> and for, for Mac Jones, I think it's not necessarily the opposite, but there aren't layups in this offense. It's a no. very complex offense. Judge and Patricia are asking him to be a superhero oftentimes on early downs. And then when they get into third down situations, when he's targeting beyond the sticks, it's oftentimes putting the ball in harm's way. That's why the negative EPA is there. That's why he's taking a lot of sacks on long third downs. The, go back and watch all of his third and longs, and you'll see when they're having success, they're throwing screens behind the line of scrimmage or, or design crosses and all that stuff to avoid asking him to push the ball downfield. And when they're having trouble, it's when they ask him to push it down the field to what isn't a good receiving core that isn't leveraging the two tight, end, two tight ends they paid a ton of money. I don't know. I, I, I worry about this Patriots offense, even with the bye, I trust Belichick and the defense to have an answer or have answers for this quick passing game and what's going to try and limit Zach Wilson. I don't know if Judge and Patricia are going to have answers for the offense. I can't believe that Matt Patricia and Joe Judge didn't have the answers. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, Cowboys-Vikings, this is a home pick em for the Vikings. Um, I liked the Paul Allen, the play-by-play guy for the Vikings, went viral this week, like LeBron Yeah, yeah, I saw that. It. That was a cool tweet. Yeah, that was a cool tweet. There were a lot of folks who were just like, I didn't, they did the shack. I wasn't familiar with their game, your game thing. Like I, Paul Allen, I normally hate Homer announcers. Um, not hate, hate's a strong word, but I normally kind of roll my eyes. Like I, a lot of times, especially on Saturdays, I have to listen to college football and I listen to the Sirius XM and I'll just click whatever the first game, whatever the first result is. So a lot of times it's like, oh, I'm listening to, you know, South Carolina radio and it's like, Oh man, I don't really like this. But Paul Allen just does it in such a touching, passionate way that when he says like, you drop that ball, Josh Allen, I'm like, you know what? I don't have really have a dog in this fight. I'm finding this endearing. <laughs> um, how much, Austin Gale, were we reading into the Packers loss last week for the Cowboys? I think that the market is surprisingly leaning more Cowboys than I originally thought. You know, you have... It's a pick em in some spots, but on FanDuel right now, Cowboys favored by one and a half on the road against the 8-1 Vikings coming off a monster win on the road over the Buffalo Bills, the juggernaut Buffalo Bills, and still the market has Cowboys favored by one and a half. And if you look at cash and ticket splits, 78% of the cash bet on the spread of this game is on Dallas. And some of that's mm. fandom, some of that's that, but 55% of the tickets are on Minnesota. Tickets is a square better. Cash is a sharp better. And you're seeing sharp money come on the Cowboys early week. And that's why this line hasn't moved a lot. A lot of people, I was talking to Jason Goff, my podcast co-host on Power Rankers. I was like, what do you think this line is? I know you haven't looked at the line. What do you think this line is on Tuesday? He's like, Vikings by four and a half. It's like, no, Cowboys by one and a half. Like there are, there's sharp money back in the Cowboys in this game. And I think it comes to look at what happened in Green Bay. You know, the Dallas Cowboys are stopping Christian Watson on a fourth and seven away from winning that game, probably, right? They're up 28-14 in the fourth quarter. Watson goes deep for a touchdown. They were down two starting cornerbacks. Anthony Brown went down at the half with a concussion, forced Kelvin Joseph into the game. He was getting burnt like toast by Christian Watson. And Green Bay's offensive philosophy to tack the edges of that Dallas Cowboys defense, I think, was 
awesome to see. You forced those defensive backs to tackle, ran, ran away from the teeth of that defense. And I think the loss of Anthony Barr is a big part of this as well. Anthony Barr forces Micah Parsons to play a little bit more off ball. Off ball is not where he's at his best. And now you're not getting pressure on the quarterback at the same rate you were. That secondary that was having all that success isn't getting the same pressure on the quarterback as they were. So for Dallas, I think they need to get healthier defensively. I don't know what the injury reports are yet. It's just Thursday, November 17th. But man, I think offensively, Dak getting some flack for throwing those two really ugly interceptions to the same player still had a 14-point lead in this game you know, deep into the second half. So I, I do think that the Dallas Cowboys are rightfully favored in this game over a Vikings team that, regardless of what advanced stat you look at, middle of the pack in efficiency, middle of the pack in offensive and defensive efficiency, and heavily reliant in fourth quarter EPA and comebacks and, mm-hmm. and turnovers and, and a lot of volatile areas of the game. What's predictive is four quarter efficiency. And you see that more from the Dallas Cowboys. You see that more from the, the Buffalo Bills, the team that they just beat. So I, I'm not surprised that the Cowboys are favored by one and a half. Maybe this line gets down to one half point to- closer to kick as more money comes in on the Vikings. But man, I, I do think that this is going to be a tight one and not a must win for either team either. You know, when you look at playoff probability, both these teams are, are near locks to make the postseason. So it'll be interesting to see who shows up. I saw Pickham. Strange. We're looking at different websites. Um, okay, so I like the Vikings here. I don't really know what the hell happened with the Cowboys offense at the end of last week. Justin Jefferson came on this podcast, came on the Ring NFL show in the summer. We got, we got aggregated until the cows came home. I don't think that he's just the best receiver in the NFL. I think he's one of the best players. Like, I think he has the capability to take over a game right now in a way very, very few people do. Um, and I think that there gets to be a time, first of all, like you start to realize how special that LSU team was that it had not only him, but Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. Like the fact that they're all independently good and there wasn't just one, I mean, there were a couple of guys who were just drafting off of them, but th- they weren't those guys. Like that was such a special collection of, of offense. Anyway, having said that, um, I just think that that connection right now and their ability to make plays when they need it is something special. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to bet against it until I see them being incapable of doing so. I know that they got some luck last week, but they also got unlucky. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I'm in, I'm in on this Vikings team until further notice. I, I'm really tired of, you know, those excuses with Minnesota, not even excuses, but like highlighting that, you know, even in my power rankings file, I have on the ringer.com, the Vikings behind the Buffalo bills. And every Vikings fan is screaming that since they won, head-to-head in Buffalo that they should be ahead of the Buffalo Bills in power rankings. I, I, I always look at it as this. If I was going to give you 100 bucks and you get a, you double your money on this team winning the Super Bowl, so you're getting even money either way. 100 bucks mm-hmm. would you bet on the Vikings to win the Super Bowl or 100 bucks to bet on the Bills to win the Super Bowl? And every single time, any analyst you know, worth its salt is going to say, I'm taking Buffalo at even money if you're giving me Vikings at even money. That is essentially what, what is the determiner of of strength, team strength, and power ratings, and those things. It's it's evaluating you know, what team can go three games in the postseason to win a Super Bowl, which the Bills and the Vikings might both have to do. You know, Vikings no longer uh, or, or could be in the one seed, depending on how the Eagles finish the season. Obviously, the Bills mm-hmm. now out of the one seed with the eight, with the Kansas City Chiefs. So I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. I don't think bringing up single game, single play samples of why this team beat this team effectively matter in determining team strength. The reason the Cowboys are favored by one and a half is the market values the Cowboys is a better team looking at any advanced metric that you have. Chiefs Chargers. Chiefs on the road favored by six. The Chiefs score on 46% of their drives right now. That's the best in the NFL. I don't think I needed to say that was the best in the NFL, but that's the best in the NFL. 
Uh, is this Charger team going to stop them? This is an interesting game because I'm seeing a lot of money bet on the Chargers. This game in some spots is five and a half now. Some t- you can find books that have it at four and a half. I don't think that's all the Miko Hardman injury, him going on the injured reserve today. I'm kind of shocked. Four weeks. That's I, moving I'm, the lines. Did Terry Kill say he's that, the best receiver in football yesterday? He did. Well, he said like six different receivers were the best of him. He quote tweeted that same tweet and said Jalen Waddle, Nicole Hardman, like all these different guys. Dude, that's, you know what that is? That's how you get aggregated is you just say so-and-so like are the best. That's how you get quote cards. Tyreek Hill gets content, okay? Go back and watch his podcast in the offseason. That guy gets it. So does Mike McDaniel. It's a content team. You know, people talk about the Miami Dolphins as a vibes team. It's a content team. They know. Well, the Rams, they know where the the Rams are the content team. They, I guess I the AFC needs a content team. The AFC needs a content team. I, I, I like I like Miami as a content team. Mike McDaniel, every press conference is showing up, delivering content. I think that's that's high value. But with this game, you see money coming in on the Chargers. Char- it was six and a half and five and a half and four and a half. And some people, division rival at home, getting six I'm betting in and a, a lot of people bet that on principle and that you know you know home dogs in in the division getting six is often crazy especially with a talent like Justin Herbert but the injuries offensively and defensively for the Los Angeles Chargers are too vast for me mm-hmm. to back the Chargers in this spot now I do feel going against so much movement right seeing this line go from six to five to four feels again you bring up that you know that word square it feels square to go against the grain and go against the movement but man if this number gets down to three and a half by kick i'm screw i'm sprinting to drop two three four units on the chiefs man because i i really like this chiefs offense i've talked about them multiple times on this podcast and just how much better they are compared to last year how much better patch mahomes is compared to last year i don't care if they don't have miko hardman this offense is different patch mahomes is different <laughs> The runaway, the runaway favorite for MVP, in my opinion. I, I, I think that Lamar Jackson's in the conversation. You have to have Josh Allen in the conversation. But man, what Patrick Mahomes has done to change how he's playing the game, to adapt to more cover two, more cover four, more quarters coverages, and and legitimately elevate this offense beyond what we've seen before, I think you have to tip your cap. I like the Chiefs. Give me any point. Four and a half, five and a half, I would be betting them the whole way. Agree, Chiefs. I saw stats. CBS put it out there. Air yards per pass attempt this season among quarterbacks drafted in the 2020 class. Did you see this stat? I don't think I saw this one. Tua, 8.9. Jalen Hurt, 7.3. Joe Burrow, 6.6. Justin Herbert, 6.2. I, 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 are we, we're going to do it again. We're going to have a national discussion about Herbert cooking. We're going to do it. <laughs> Sleepy Joe Lombardi, not capa- what, capable, what, what, not up to what, the job. What's interesting about that, and I was talking to Steve Ruiz about it, who obviously is a Justin Herbert truther on the quarterback rankings on TheRinger.com. I think he pushed Herbert over Josh Allen this week, which I think had a lot of people upset. He hasn't won games. He hasn't won a playoff that game, whatever, whatever. like Ruiz. The, making, the issue, making the issue huge, I have... Huge swaths of football fans irrationally just insane. That doesn't sound like Ruiz. The, the issue I have with evaluating this offense, and specifically Joe Lombardi and Justin Herbert, is... Which is the chicken or the egg here? Is it because the Chargers have so many receiver injuries and even when they're fully healthy, not a lot of speed that Joe Lombardi calls a lot of stick routes and calls a lot of quick game and does not call routes beyond you know much further beyond the line of scrimmage? Or is it Joe Lombardi, regardless of the talent he has, disinterested in a downfield passing game, disinterested in, in five and seven step dropbacks because of the offensive line or whatever it may be? Like, is personnel influencing this decision making or is it Lombardi? You know, kind of getting into his shell every single week and being conservative. And I think Seth Galina of PFF, who's a you know, diehard Saints fan, talks about how Lombardi with Drew Brees called the same offense. So it's hard to say 
that the excuses are personnel. It's just that he values, obviously, this underneath passing game and had a prime mm-hmm. Drew Brees doing it when it was having its most success. With Herbert, Herbert isn't Drew Brees. I'm not saying he's better than Drew Brees. Drew Brees is a Hall of Famer, but he has a different skill set than Drew Brees. And he specifically has a rocket arm and can do things outside the pocket that other quarterbacks can't and can read full field progressions regardless of pressure or not. I just think they can be more aggressive and have to be if they're going to have their jobs next year. Let, let's talk mm-hmm. about it. Like Brandon Staley and Joe Lombardi are not coaching this team, period, if they miss the playoffs. Back-to-back seasons of missing the playoffs with Justin Herbert is malpractice. So I think they need to change something, adapt something, go into their bag and look at how do we get more aggressive? Do we add... Do we add a Deshaun Jackson off the street like the Baltimore Ravens? Is that how we add speed? I, I think things have to change. I think you can't be comfortable with what this offense is looking like, just like you can't be comfortable with this defense, who, again, is one of the worst run defenses in the NFL. So I don't know how much I have faith in Staley Lombardi making the necessary changes to beat this Chiefs team at home and, and even cover the spread, even if it's at four and a half, five and a half. Love the points you're making. The problem that Staley faces is not just that the Spanos team might be like, what the hell are you about Justin Herbert make the damn playoffs? It's that people like Sean Payton who have options are going to call the Chargers first and be like, hey man, just to make sure before I take the Cardinals job or before I take the Broncos job, whatever, you're not moving on, are you? Like you're going to get those calls. And the one thing, Mm -hmm. the one thing about coaching searches I've learned over the past, let's say five, six years since I got better sources and got, got better into it and all that stuff it's all pro wrestling. Like so many of these things are packaged in like November going back before that. I mean, I heard of one where they were like, Oh yeah, that GM and that coach decided to work together in like September. And it's like, what? That job wasn't even open. Like I heard a thing about college recently where it's like, Oh, so-and-so checked on that job in August. It's like, hang on. What? Like it's all, I mean, it's like media, (laughs) right? Where it's like we, you and I can sit here and say like the next six months of moves in media that we don't, that, that aren't, aren't announced yet. They're like big high profile stuff because these are the people we work with and our friends and we talk and we yeah. text and say, Hey man, what, my, well, my contract's up. I'm going here, whatever we can do that. So can coaches. And so mm-hmm. my guess is, is that the, the machinations of what's happening to Brandon Staley are happening now. And that someone like Sean yeah. Payton is calling and saying like, Hey man, just, just to make sure, or there's some coach who we're not even thinking about. This happens all the time. A coach we're not even thinking about who says, okay, well, maybe my team would trade me, whatever, my owner's kind of over me, or I might be getting fired, some big deal guy. I mean, I'm just making this up. Like, no one no one this time last year was talking about Jim Harbaugh, and then Jim Harbaugh thought he had the yeah. Vikings job. Like, we don't know this stuff. And so Staley's got to kind of, this is not a week 18 thing for Staley. This is this is a week 12 thing for Staley. So that mm-hmm. that's my important yeah. coaching thing. When you're on the fence... You're almost already fired in this industry when you have a desirable job. Something to remember. Now, the Spanish family might not want to make a, make a move, but on the other hand, they're in an L.A. market where the buyout becomes secondary to the fact that you're going to lose a bunch of revenue and nobody wants to root for your team. So that's that's my Chargers thing. I'm, I'm pro-Chargers. I love Justin Herbert. I, I think it's cool. If I were growing up LA, in L.A. right now, I'd want my kid to be a Chargers fan because, A, cheaper tickets, <laughs> but B, like, you know, it's... it's it's just a cooler team right now. Um, Justin Herbert is better than b- b- broken elbow Matthew Stafford. Like, that's a more inspiring team to watch right now. Anyway, that, that's my rant. Uh, Bengals, Steelers, Bengals in the road, minus four. You wanted to talk about this game. The Steelers have the second worst scoring percentage in the NFL. Um, what exactly, this is, you, you're, you've joined the Sickos committee here. What exactly has piqued your interest about this game, Austin Gale? Well, th- this is a playoff game for the Bengals. I'll say it right now. This is you lose this game, it's out. It's over. 
The Bengals have the second hardest strength of schedule remaining according to ESPN's Football Power Index. And this is the easiest game they've got left. Four and a half point favorites on the road against the Pittsburgh Steelers team that beat them in week one without Jamar Chase. Then, after this game, say they do win, they have to go to Tennessee and take on Vrabel and the Titans. Host the Chiefs. Host the Browns, who they already got bludgeoned by on Thursday Night Football 32-13. Then they have to go to Tampa Bay to take on Brady. Go to Foxborough to take on Belichick. Host the Bills. Host the Ravens. They lose this game, it's over. It's over. And yes. I think Zach Taylor better know that. You know, uh, the uh, Joe Burrow has to know that. This offense has to know that. They have to come out firing. Because if you allow this Steelers offense to be two-dimensional and you allow the defense to also force you into situations where they're you know, not having success running the football, say that Steelers go up seven, go up ten, like they did in week one, I think the Bengals are going to have problems. They have to stay to two-dimensional. They have to stay up, you know, um, uh, up on the sticks and not behind the sticks. This is a big game for Cincinnati. For Pittsburgh, it doesn't necessarily matter. They're still evaluating Kenny Pickett. They're still evaluating this offense. They get T.J. Watt back. That's obviously a huge win for this the Steelers team. But you have Lou Anarumo, who's been, I said Ghost Bradley is in his bag. Lou Anarumo is even deeper. Him coming off a bye, preparing for a Kenny Pickett-led offense that is ugly every single week. Even going back to the Saints game that they won last week, it's still hard to watch. Hard to watch him push the ball downfield. Hard to watch him work off of non-play action dropbacks. I think that this Cincinnati Bengals team goes into Pittsburgh and lights up the Steelers. I, I think this is a, a blowout waiting to happen, not just because they're looking for revenge over week one, but they know more than anything that they have to jump out to a lead against this team. They have to stomp on the throat early against this team, not just to beat up on them and avoid getting into a situation where you allow Pickett in this offense to be two-dimensional and hand it off to Warren and et cetera, but also because if you lose this game, you're not going to win enough games down the stretch of what is a murderer's row kind of schedule to, to make the postseason. You're going to go from Super Bowl to out of the playoffs. And I just know that the Cincinnati's not not looking forward to that. You know you're uh, in audience metrics. You know that superstars sell content, no matter what it is. You write about LeBron, people are going to click. You write about Mahomes, people are going to click. Tom Brady, people are going to click. So you come on my podcast as someone with audience engagement in your mind at all times, and you say the following two <laughs> people in their bag, Gus Bradley and Luana Rumo. That's why superstars sell. The big two Let's of the go. NFL, big Lou, <laughs> Sweet Lou and Big Gus are in their bag. It is their era. It is Sweet Lou's era. If you're not backing Bradley and Anarumo at this point in the season, I don't know what to tell you. Now, I don't Bradley know what the is hell to cold. tell you. Learn ball. <laughs> Learn ball. Um, all right, let's get to college here. Utah, Oregon. So the Bear tweets out, this is the first time since 2015 that Utah is favored over Oregon. The Ducks have been an underdog in each of the last six games versus the Utes. Okay, monumental. Not so fast, my friend. Utah on the road is now a two-point favorite. A lot of that has to do with the health of Bo Nix. We don't know what's going on. Uh, Dan Lanning confirmed Ty Thompson is QB2, but they have other options. Utah has won four games in a row. Oregon lost last week in one of the, I wouldn't call it duds of the year because it was close, but they made a lot of stupid mistakes. Um, left, a, left a win on the table there at home against the Huskies. What do you got, buddy? This is interesting. Utah coming off what? Back-to-back games where they scored 40 points, both mm-hmm. in Utah, uh, a convincing win over Stanford. I, I always come back to when looking at any Oregon game is where they play. If they're playing mm-hmm. in Otson, it's 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 a vile, vile place to play in. It's hard to play and win in Otson. But Oregon at home is coming off a loss where like, it's just an absolute letdown loss. And I think it's so much of a letdown that they're mapping to the playoffs and they're mapping to the top of the Pac-12 is so out of it that 
I don't know how much Oregon's getting up for this game. And I think maybe that's why some of the spread is tipping now in the favor of Utah. Utah favored by two and a half on FanDuel right now. Bo Nix has been awesome this year. I got a text. Here's a text for you. I know you got sources. Here's a, here's a source. I got a text from a PFF employee by the name of Mike Renner. And he said, he's a draft analyst there at PFF. And he said, guys, it was a group chat, I guess. I think I like Bo Nix as a draft prospect. Even 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 Mike Renner's getting on Bo Nix as a draft eligible quarterback this time of year. So you know that the offense, you know, you got you got people back in Bo Nix now. You got people back in his Heisman campaign, not after last week's loss. But man, he has played some good ball this year in Austin. It's hard not to back the Ducks. I, and I think this is a classic, classic maybe overreaction to what was a bad week last week. And with Utah obviously going into Oregon with maybe more to lose, higher ranked team in this one. I don't know. I, I, I can't handicap this game. I, I like Oregon in some spots. Now that it's at two and a half, you don't get the full three. Maybe you stay away from Oregon. You wait to get to that key number. It, it, it's a tough game for me. There's something to be said for the fact that I, I, I wanted to tweet this out, and this is the most niche comment I'm ever going to make in my life. Bo Nix's father was the worst offensive coordinator in the history of the University of Miami, which is saying something, 2007. <laughs> and I think he started the downfall that eventually led to Mario Cristobal, which then led to Dan Lanning being hired and then Bo Nix going to Oregon. So really, if Bo Nix became an NFL prospect, if things had broken differently and he won the Heisman, all of that stuff, his father being really bad at calling plays started the entire butterfly effect. There's a real inflection point here, and I don't want to go down that road, but I'm just going to throw that out there. It's uh, it's not, it's sub-tweet. It's not worth a tweet because I know Oregon fans will get mad and say, stop talking about Oregon. Mario Cristobal sucks. Um, all right, so... I'm picking Utah here only because of the quarterback health thing. I don't know what's going on there. Um, Utah always plays well. They're they're the paragon of competence. I'm in. Um, That last week was so weird. And I I think that they were, they they had so much, the Ducks had so much juice last week that to make those mistakes, to fall down on fourth down, to have some of the play calling problems, that Bo Nix, and it wasn't his fault, the kind of swinging gate, eight, eight men in motion fumble, where Bo Nix fumbled the snap and need the ball, so it went directly to Washington's linebackers who were waiting on the goal line. That was such a bizarre play. It was getting too cute by half. They were three yards away from the end zone. Just punch it in, brother. Like, it's not complicated. I thought that this was the first huge game that, I mean, may, may, I mean, depending on how you view the Pac-12, they played Georgia, that wasn't even close, that's fine. First game against a team way more talented, I don't blame you by losing, for, for losing by 39 points, okay? Having said that, Dan Lanning, clearly, I think we don't learn about game management for a guy until he gets in those sort of games, and you also can't even say he failed, he's just new at it. He hasn't done it before. It just True. happens. True. Like there's a re- you have to give these guys reps. You have to give them. I mean, I'm not saying Nathaniel Hackett became Bill Belichick all of a sudden with situational football, but he hired. Sounds like he hired his buddy last year from Stanford, Hackett. Or, you know, in in to Denver. Okay, guy wasn't capable of it. Screwed up. Hired some new guy, and he's gotten marginally better at it. Let these guys make mistakes. I don't think you can say there's some pass fail thing that Dan Landing is in an unrecoverable stall from. I'm just saying that was weird last week. I'm going Utah. I just like their franchise. I was going to say the franchise. I like the way the program uh, operates in a game like this. With, with the quarterback injury question marks, I think it's fair to back Utah here. I think I, I want to see Oregon win. I want to see the success story that is Bo Nix, but I think backing Utah is probably the right value. USC, UCLA, USC on the road, but in quotation marks, they're just going to the Rose Bowl, two and a half point favorites. What do you got? I I am more interested in the total of this game. The total has been 
dancing around 74, 75, and now 76 and a half. These teams offensively are absolutely electric. UCLA is the fifth ranked team in the Power Five in e-paper play. USC, number one. USC has scored 40 plus points in eight games this season. UCLA has scored 40 plus points in seven games this year. Both teams can run the football. Both teams can throw the football. Caleb Williams, likely favorite if you had odds on it to be the number one overall pick in 2024. My reaction is this is going to be a shootout. And it's not the better defense that wins this one. Both these defenses stink. It's going to be the better quarterback. And I like Caleb Williams a lot. I think Caleb Williams, the fact that you can get him at two and a half right now on, on the road, like you said, it's not that big of a road game here. It's going to be a shootout and the better quarterback wins it. I like Williams over DTR. I'm going to take I'm going to take USC and the points here. But this is going to be a fireworks show. If you're looking for absolute fireworks in the Pac-12, not necessarily after dark, not sure what time you're turning this game on. I guess it is 1030 ET it, it, or no. Hmm. 7.30 ET, not after dark. It's going to be bright times. You're going to have to look at this one because the, the, the total on this game, 76 and a half, is one of the highest totals of the season. USC. You know, it's funny because I was talking to Golik the other day, Golik Jr. I don't have Golik Sr.'s phone number. Um, but I was talking to Golik Jr. <laughs> and I was like, I was talking about USC versus Tennessee versus even North Carolina. And I really do think USC is going to make the playoffs if they went out. I really do because it's a brand thing. If if UNC and by the way, I mean I guess UNC's offensive line is worse or whatever, but I just think you're you're it's all hypothetical situations. We haven't seen enough. Once we get one one of the benefits, Austin, of the expanded playoff is going to see more conference versus conference data points to understand what mm-hmm. this looks like from year over year. We just don't see it enough, and we say, oh, well, it's the Bulls. The Bulls, dude. Half the teams are checked out. I remember Herbie saying this years ago about the Bulls, and I'll never forget it. He's like, in most bowl games. There's just a team that just doesn't want to be there. So just figure out who doesn't want to be there. You know, like figure out the team that's just bailing on the season, right? And so when we actually have high leverage games like the playoff, we're going to be able to understand like ACC versus Pac-12 versus the fourth best team in the SEC, that sort of thing. But I think USC, because of their brand, is going to make the playoff. Um, I'm fascinated to see it. I, I, I want to get, I want to twin this with Tennessee, South Carolina. Hendon Hooker, by the way, Still the second best PFF Power Five graded quarterback. Number one, do you know who it is? Hmm. I I, I used to work for PFF. I should probably know this. Is mm-hmm. it Bo Nix? It's Drake May of North Carolina. Oh, Drake May. Yeah. Who, by the way, is him? He's him. He's just a freshman and can't come out. <laughs> I like Drake May. He he's looked good this year. I think that he's he's really driving up Josh Downs, the, the UNC wide receiver, oh, yeah. his, his draft stock this year. A lot of people really like Josh Downs. Uh, I do think that more people would be talking about him as a Heisman candidate if he was an upperclassman. Uh, you know, UNC 9-1 on the season. He's electric. His numbers are as electric as they come. I think the way in to a bigger you know part of the Heisman conversation is obviously if Michigan goes to Ohio State as a 6.5-point dog right now, if you bet the look-ahead line, and beats if Michigan beats Ohio State and C.J. Stroud loses that game, then I think you could start to see more Drake May hype but um, no, May's been awesome. Hooker's been awesome. Me and Roger Sherman on the betting podcast call it the hypo-led Hendon Hooker Heisman hype before obviously the the Georgia the Georgia game, the Georgia loss. And this Tennessee offense, man, against good defenses, which there aren't a lot of in college football, is going to struggle if you get him behind the sticks. And if you go back and watch that Tennessee game, it's it, it's inch by inch, lull him to sleep, lull him to sleep, take your shot. And in that game, you saw Hendon Hooker just overthrow a couple passes, have a bad interception. That offense is hard to win with if you aren't constantly gaining five, constantly gaining six, constantly winning on early downs, and Georgia obviously stopped them there. That was unfortunate to see, man, because I was back in I was back in Hendon Hooker in Tennessee in that Georgia game. Since then, obviously coming off a big win over Missouri, 
They're favored by what, 21 and a half over 20, South Carolina? I'm, I don't I'm usually seeing like 26 <laughs> right now. I, 21 and a half, I saw as well. Both were posted three days ago. I don't know where this is moving. It's so big right now. It's just, are they going to win by I usually stay away from betting these games. I, I still stay away from betting games at this large of spreads. And it's usually like if you put 20, 30 you know, point spreads into any model, you're going to oftentimes see value well, on the, the underdog. The, the, betting on the favorite in, this, in these games is stupid. Because you don't know. Betting yes, on the yes, underdog, if exactly. you have, have a feeling, is pretty good. I yes. just don't have a feeling because <laughs> I don't believe in South Carolina at all. No, and South Carolina's been tough, man. They just got torched by uh, Florida. Uh, Spencer Rattler is not him. Uh, this offensive line is a struggle. The run game can't get anything going. Florida shut down the run game last week. Like I worry that South Carolina could get beat by you know, 30, 40-plus against what is a really good Tennessee offense when it's pitted against not Georgia and, and South Carolina's defense this year ranks what 45th in EPA per play allowed in the power five. Like I don't like, I don't like South Carolina this week. It's a loss. No matter how you look at it. I think Tennessee goes and rolls. Sam, what would you do about the playoff? Like the playoff oh, so let's is say interesting. if they, yeah, I, I don't know what to do because if LSU beats Georgia, it's two lost team. But then it creates a mess of one-loss teams. Include, I mean, thank yeah. God one of whether well, there will be an undefeated Big Ten team. Thank God. Just barring some mm-hmm. crazy thing happening in the Big Ten championship game. But, man, I don't... I, it's, it's funny because I was going to say it seems like a great year to have a 12-team playoff. But then someone, I think it was Nicole Arbach, posted a 12-team playoff mock and Clemson and Alabama were still in there. And it's like, oh, cool. It just would have ruined the regular season. But it doesn't help... The fourteen playoff doesn't help the 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 current problem no. here. I, I, for if you're asking for my position on should the playoffs be expanded, I, I'm all I'm a huge proponent of expanding the playoffs for the same reason that they expanded them. It makes more money for everyone, and I think any decision that makes more money is often going to get pushed through, and oh my it just God. makes it more fun. What an right? audience I, engagement head yeah, here. I, I, so I, I have a pet peeve when, when people talk about this kind of shit of big business making decisions and they're like, are you serious? Integrity of the game? Why wouldn't you want a 14 but playoff? It's not, it but, sure but, that but the it's best, not integrity It's not about of the game. that. It's not but about it, it, that. But, it's about making more money. But that's not, but, but, but that's, that's not the point I'm coming from. The point I'm coming from yeah. is what's more important, maximizing playoff revenue or maximizing regular season revenue? Because all of the things that we're talking about, Alabama yeah. would still make the playoff in this scenario which means yes. what we saw at Neyland Stadium and what we saw at Death Valley would be lessened. So do less people end up watching because they're going to just see Alabama in the playoff? Does it feel different? Does it feel different when they run sprint right option in Death Valley and Jaden Daniels <laughs> hits that pass because we know they might play again in the playoff in January and none of this stuff matters? By the way, if Alabama made the playoff, they'd probably do some damage. They would probably do some damage because that's the way it works. So when I I think it's six, six is the correct answer for the playoff. 12 is too much. Six gives you conference champions. It gives you some number two in a conference that got screwed. 12 is too much. It has the best, college ball is the best regular season in sports. Yes, and if you ruin yes. that, the whole thing starts to go. It starts to go. I I agree with you 100% that college football has the best regular season in sports. It's why Tennessee-Bama can rival and you know Major League World Series views in terms of how many people actually watched Alabama-Tennessee versus any one you know, Phillies-Astros game in the World Series. However, that to me doesn't scream keep the regular season. 
that to me screams, you got meat on the bone, right? Imagine what more playoff games would be. Imagine what we could do to the World Series numbers if there were 12 playoff teams and we're, we're, we're racking up in, increased viewership, increased viewership. That's what I think they're looking at with this. Regardless, with the college football playoff, who I think makes it, when you look at the betting odds bro, right remember now, when, remember Georgia when, minus... Bro, bro, remember when James Corden <laughs> had yes. carpool karaoke and then they made an entire show of carpool karaoke? No, too much of it. Too much. I agree. I agree. You're getting that. Remember, right thing. Do, you, I agree. Bro, do you remember? Do you remember when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was the hottest show on TV? And then it just went five nights a week and they just canceled whatever the hell ABC was showing back then. Dharma and Greg. Dharma and Greg, you are gone. You are cooked, Dharma yes. and Greg. We I understand. Just in five I understand nights that. a week. I understand that. That's what you're trying <laughs> to do to college that. football. Now, now, okay, okay. Let, let, me, let me flip the script on you. Do you remember when media digital media outlets would come out with maybe three or four mock drafts a year. Now you have media outlets coming out with one a week, two a week. That hasn't dropped the mock draft market. I think you're fine. Like a mock draft every day, mock draft every night. That starts to dip into probably, you know, this whole like supply and demand thing. I think going from four to 12 does not hit on that. Now, if they were like, make the entire oh, regular good. season. Let's make college football like the mock draft industry. Yes. Good. Yeah. Good well, model. No, here's another example. Here's another example. Here's another example. Marvel movies. Marvel movies. Oh, I'm good. not a Marvel yeah. guy. I know phase I know, nine I, so, of the playoff. Phase. So hear me out. Did you watch Thor Ragnarok or whatever the fucking latest Thor was? The the Did one you with Natalie Portman is the star. No. Yes. Because I haven't yes. been on an no, okay. airplane. Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? It was rated the worst Marvel movie of this phase, and it is number four in box office revenue. That's why you do it. That's why you do it. It's because people will still watch it, just like they'll watch college football when it's a twelve team playoff. Not me. I'm not. Well, I, I, me. I, oh, good. <laughs> you know what? It's going to become like Marvel movies. It and is. The it only is. time I'm going to watch college football is when I'm on a Delta flight from LAX to JFK. <laughs> uh, your, your, your 12 seed versus your one seed is going to be Ant-Man 3. And guess what? Everyone's showing up. Everyone's showing up for Ant-Man 3, just like they've been showing up for Iron Man 1 and all the original Marvel movies. They're going to keep testing it. I wouldn't be surprised if they continue to look at expanding the playoff. Multiple playoffs, multiple leagues. They'll just keep going. Money doesn't stop. Cool. Good sport you got there. <laughs> be a shame if somebody <laughs> added a... 50 playoff games to it. All right. You want to talk about Bedlam. Oh, man. Uh, Oklahoma, seven and, a half, uh, seven and a half point favorites at home. This one's interesting because I, I, I hate to bring this up, anecdotal evidence and, and, and bullshit evidence and why I'm betting a team, but this game means more to Gundy, man. He, he went on that rant about how Oklahoma's killing Bedlam. They're moving to the SEC. This game has been you know historic to college football, and, and they're leaving it behind. Oklahoma's seven and a half point favorite at home. They have not been good this year, just five and five on the season. Meanwhile, Oklahoma State has lost some games, but they've had some quarterback injuries. Spencer Sanders has battled a shoulder injury. Guess who had to play because Spencer Sanders is hurt? A guy named Gunnar Gundy. True freshman, you know, Mike Gundy's son had to go in there, watch him throw one of the worst interceptions I've ever seen in my life. He crossed the line of scrimmage, so you can't throw past the line of scrimmage. Still threw the football and threw a pick, which technically you think about that, right? And you're like, oh man. I guess that's going to come back. No, you can just decline the penalty and take the pick. So they end up taking the pick on a... Uh, it's, it was rough to see Gunnar Gundy play and get benched for Spencer Sanders in this game where Spencer Sanders comes back and wins. He was asked after the game, are you going to play in Bedlam? He's like, hell yeah, I'm going to play in Bedlam. I, I don't know. I think Oklahoma State has more fire. I think Gundy has more fire. Oklahoma, on the other hand, Venables has really struggled to get this offense going. It's one of the few teams in college football, in my opinion, that swung and missed on a transfer quarterback. You know, bringing in Dalen Gilbert, mm -hmm. he's not been that guy. And defensively... 
it's still getting cut up every single week. What do they rank? You know, 43rd. Uh, or no, 50th in EPA per play allowed defensively for Oklahoma. They have not brought that over overnight. So I don't know. I, I think this game means more at Oklahoma State. I like them at plus seven and a half, and I'm probably sprinkling some on the money line as well. Gunner Gundy content. It Didn't means see that more. One coming. It, it means more. It means more for the Gundys. It means more. Dylan Gabriel, yeah, I saw some quotes this week. They thought they were going to be able to work downfield more. It just hasn't happened. It just has not happened. And, and, and you know, this is going to happen. Like, with, with the transfer portal, every single year, you're going to have the... I had a... Maybe this was Cope. I mean, it probably was Cope. Let's be <laughs> honest. It was probably Cope. Um, Jaden Rashada tr- uh, flipped from Miami to Florida over the week. Uh, four-star quarterback from California. Um, really good player. I think he's a top-10 quarterback in his class. I was talking to some of my CFB friends and I was saying, you know, mm. starting to think that quarterback recruiting, we're kind of post quarterback recruiting. We're kind of like, what's the point of having a guy fail as a freshman and or not learn on the job as a freshman fails, fails a strong word, learn on the job as a freshman, sophomore, maybe it gets better. Junior, senior, he's cooking, right? When you can just go out and say, there's college tape on some guy I really like. I mean, I'm not saying there's going to be one like this every week. I was talking to an NFL scout the other day about Jared Verse, uh, who transferred from Albany to Florida State. He's really good. I say, is he better or worse than Jermaine Johnson, who was the Florida State transfer this time last year, who came from the SEC? And he says better. So we're talking about like a, a legit top 10 pick with Jared Verse. I don't know if that's widely held, but I know that this guy knows ball. And I was thinking like, you can get to a point if you're a top, top, top program. And Oklahoma is a top, top, top program where you're saying, okay, I can just go out and get a new quarterback with this college tape basically every two years. Or if there's a freshman, you know, just go out and get him and have two or three years of eligibility. Or he's not even a pro style guy and we can keep him until he's a senior. Like, I just think the quarterback is going to be easier. If you're asking me who I want to recruit, I want to recruit linemen and cornerbacks because those guys aren't out there on the open market. Like, I mean, Miami got one from Georgia, Tyreek Stevenson. He's okay. But the fifth best cornerback at Georgia is not somebody you want to bring into your program if you're Florida or Miami or Florida State. Those guys typically are just not NFL caliber. Not everybody's a Jared Verse, although there are exceptions. I mean, again, I I just mentioned Jermaine Johnson a second ago. Um, Having said that, I just... Dylan Gabriel's a miss, but we're going to have that. We're going to have things that seem like surefire um, hits that, that don't miss. I could go all day on the transfer portal. I could go my, all day on playoffs. My, my, my opinion, though, real quickly on, on the transfer portal, my, my opinion on that is I don't think we're in the post-recruit-a-quarterback era. I think you still want to be you know, targeting high-profile, four-star, five-star recruits if you can get them at the quarterback position. However, we've eliminated, as a Power 5 team, the excuse of a rebuilding year. Or the need to I think in have the first like year, a stopgap I think the solution. first year is impossible. I think the first year is right, impossible. Yeah. Like the, the Brian you, Kelly losing two games in his first two months. Like I just think that there's you're changing over the culture. You haven't practiced enough. I think the no, first for sure. year, whether that's Lincoln Riley's defense not looking good enough, whether that's Brent Venables getting blown out, whether that's Mario Cristobal losing to Duke and MTSU, whether that's Bill Napier where the Gators look up and down. Like I think you can throw all that stuff out. Look at. I mean, I know it's different, but like everyone talked about Saban's first year. Look at Kirby Smart's first year. I mean, like, 
you can't he lost to a pretty mediocre Vanderbilt team. I think he lost to Tech in his first year. Like think weird things just happen in your first year trying to, to, to change the yeah. culture. So I think even with the portal, it's different. Look at Mel Tucker. Year two, Mel Tucker goes out and gets Kenneth Walker. All of a sudden he's cooking, he gets a $90 million contract. I think have, there's no excuses in year two because you know what you have. Mm-hmm. You can augment it with the portal. If you're bad in year two, you're just a bad coach, brother. Yeah, yeah. And, and for me, the 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 obvious example of a team that I think is fundamentally not necessarily going to catch up to that on until someone slams their head against the wall for it is Iowa. There's zero yeah. reason as a Power Five team to have Spencer Petras starting for as long as they did, and that is the Ferris Bros just being reluctant to chase quarterback and, and chase different positions in the transfer portal. Teams that are taking advantage of the transfer portal are going to be the best teams every single year, and I think maintaining competency and competitiveness by constantly seeking out veteran quarterback play when you don't have it or good quarterback play when you don't have it, specifically if you're a power five team and like going and preying on some of these group of five teams that might have talented quarterbacks. I think that makes just too much sense. There's zero excuse as a power five team to have a bad freshman, bad sophomore quarterback playing. You can go out and get some of these guys that are playing the group of five. I think if any power five team that has taken advantage of that, it's Arizona who's obviously coming off a big win this past week where they bring in Jaden Delora. They bring in Jacob Cowing, the receiver from UTEP. Like they were like, Hey, we're a power five team. Come play for us. You know, come play for us because we are obviously on a bigger stage than some of these other Mountain West and some of these teams that are closer. And I think college teams are going to catch up to that. And the right coaches and the right staffs are going to be like, hey, gone are the days as a Power 5 team that we're going to have to gruel through two, three years of this guy that we recruited that we don't really like. We can go out and get you know, some, some, some talent on the group of, five, you know, group of five market. Austin Gale, this is fun, buddy. You'll be back. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Rhino Hamlin, he wrote Net Gains. He's a former Ringer editor. He's got the book out. There it is. It's wearing, it's wearing a quarter zip. Oh, no, wow. There it is. That's a pretty nice quarter zip, brother. Well, champion action. Double How weave, many quarter zips do you own? My, my, my over-under is uh, one. It depends if all the ones I owned in high school and college are, were thrown out um, from my parents' <laughs> house or not. Otherwise, that's the only one I've got. Inspired by you, though. I, I thank you. Um, I will say that as a, like you grew up on Long Island, you played soccer. So like the quarter zip, even though you're like a cool guy, you have better fashion taste than I do. Um, the the quarter zip market for that demographic is quite high. Like there's a reason it's it, like it is the suburban uniform for anybody who has ever swung a golf club, played soccer, coached soccer. Like I have to get one when I become a hockey dad in a couple of years. I got to just get all my suits that just go right in the trash and replaced by a like. A, a a New York Rangers quarter zip. Yeah, and the like golf fashion is trending toward like you just wear it off the course as well. Yeah, and I just walk on, walk off. So it's even more saturated. A couple weeks ago, I went to a Giants game with Nor Princiati and and my wife and and her boyfriend, and we were in kind of the tunnel underneath, kind of I mean, where, it's kind where of like I... your wife and your wife's boyfriend. Yeah, let's, let's stick into that. Let's <laughs> go on. <laughs> Nora's boyfriend but we were in like the tunnel like almost where like all the premium seat people enter and the amount of guys wearing like the country club they belong to hat country club where they belong to polo or quarter zip and then golf pants like lululemon golf pants as well like they they we are there are guys who are just doing it 24 7 now did I ever tell you about my experience at West uh, West Hempstead Country Club? I, you have not, but you're about to. Um, so my buddy is a member there, and he's 
he's not the most detail oriented person in the world. So he didn't, wasn't, didn't really update me on what is kind of required at a place like this. And I'll, uh, I walked in the pro shop and had a hat on and people looked at me like I was covered in blood or something. Um, and then I was putting and my shirt was tucked in and the club pro walks over to me and goes, Hey brother, you're gonna have to tuck that shirt in. That's that's what it is. (laughs) That's what it is. I actually had that one time. This is I actually once before I golfed or whatever, I went to the Olympic club and the, actually the San Francisco outpost because the Warriors are practicing there and I wore a hat and I walked in with a hat and they act. And I was like just a media member going to see the, or the sorry, the Knicks practice against the Warriors. Um, they were playing that night and I, it, I might as well have had a bomb attached to me. Um, all right. We are going to preview the world cup here. Um, I am a massive soccer fan that has over the past year had to devote my mornings um, to other things professionally, um, obviously, like I love F1. I like F1 more than soccer. But I used to be able to say, hey, let's get Newcastle's in a 4-4 game. Let's flick over there. Not <laughs> possible anymore. Um, my soccer knowledge, I would say, is at an all-time low from the time I was 14, let's say. Um, so I'm glad to have you here. You're one of the smartest people in America about, and maybe the world, you work for ESPN, um, about soccer and, and what it is. Um, I want to start with your book. First of all, um, I read it. I loved it a lot of, uh, if you, if you want to learn about not only soccer analytics, sports analytics, the modern game, but also long Island youth soccer and what it taught Rhino Hamlin about the world, uh, you'll get there. Um, give me something that surprised you about modern soccer when you just started to dive into it. Yeah, I think the, the thing that surprised me and surprises me as I continue to kind of analyze it is like, people really don't like know anything (laughs) like even the people that um are like deep in the weeds doing very intense analysis of like tracking data and stuff Mm -hmm. like that they're very open about like soccer is by far the hardest sport to measure Mm -hmm. and like there's things we know then there's you know the uh the the rumfelds rumsfeld uh, unknown knowns yep Yes, there's unknown knowns and then there's known unknowns with it. So I, I think it's like the more I've, you know, talked to people and kind of talked to people working at clubs, people that have worked at clubs, it's just crazy to me still how like how much of it is still just kind of like networking and gut feel. And like I saw this guy play on a, you know, Saturday, look mm-hmm. pretty good. We'll sign him. And then don't you combine that with like the fact that all of the data people are like, yeah, we like are good at like measuring shots, but like everything else is basically yeah. magic still. It's fascinating to me because it feels like the ground shifts underneath everybody in soccer so quickly. And, and, and so it, it so violently shifts. And it's interesting because I listened to a hockey podcast the other day, cause I'm, I moved, I relocated to Ranger town and, um, and they were talking about how basically over the past four years, hockey became an East West game, not a North South game. And nobody really, realized it. And that's why the goalies had to change because they basically, the, the puck goes laterally and horizontally so much that the goalies mm-hmm. actually, you have basically have to switch out goalies unless they're supernaturally yeah. good at this one thing. Um, describe what modern soccer is right now. Like, I know that's a huge question, but going into this world cup, we're going to see things. And there are people who didn't watch the last world cup or weren't locked in because the United States wasn't in there. They didn't have that yeah. experience. So maybe they lost a cycle. What is modern soccer right now? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting question for two reasons. One, because 
the World Cup and club soccer are going to look different. Um, so even for people that are watching soccer, like let's say you got into soccer in the 2018 World Cup and you became Tottenham fan, Liverpool fan, whatever, and you've been watching games, it's going to look different. But so I, I guess the brief history of modern soccer is like the four four two, just kind of like four defenders flat, mm-hmm. then four midfielders flat, and then two strikers that were usually uh, the strikers were... Um, you know, one would play behind the other so mm-hmm. that you'd have a nine and a 10 and the 10 sort of dominated the sport because they would exist in the lot, the space between the line of defenders and the line of midfielders. Basically, that's like soccer in the 90s and 80s. Basically, then we had turn of the century. We have the Mourinho, the Rafa Benitez era where they focus purely on destroying anything in the area atop the penalty penalty box, basically, because that's where the number 10s basically did damage from because you're between the two lines, and then you have access to both sides of the field and the goal if you get on the ball at the top of the box, right? Um, so we have this new era where they're just shoving defensive midfielders into that spot. It becomes like a four, two, then three attackers, then a striker. You kind of stagger the lines and fill that you know area where the magic is produced with more guys that just focus on destroying it. Um, famously was described as Jorge, by Jorge Valdano, who is Maradona's a player, played with Maradona in Argentina, um, as shit on a stick watching a Chelsea <laughs> Liverpool Champions League game, I believe in 2005. Then that era was conquered, let's say, by Pep Guardiola, the kind of famous Barcelona team, just dominant possession play. Um, just, I guess, kind of this east uh, to west thing you're describing with hockey, right? Like shift the defense side to side and play defense by having the ball. And then that era was, um, let's, uh, interrupted, disrupted by the pressing era where you push your entire team high up the field, you make the team uncomfortable and you also focus on winning the ball back as soon as you lose it. So then while you don't have the number 10 who's able to kind of sit in this area and create, if you win the ball back from the other team as they're transitioning into their attacking shape, there will then be all of these uh, gaps in their defense because the shape you attack in and the shape you defend in are different. So that's kind of the, and we're now in the pressing era and it's more like the adjustment of how much you press is, is kind of the current trend. So that's what's happening in the, the um, club game In the national game. It's really hard to press because one, you don't get to pick who's on your team. You <laughs> don't get to pick who's born in your country, right? And then two, to press, it looks like a very chaotic way of playing, but it's like your players have to be super coordinated with each other. The right guy has mm-hmm. to know which, when to attack the ball, where to shade his um, shade the ball carrier. Then the other guys need to know like where to shade themselves based on where the other players are positioned. And you have to have a super like deep understanding between all the players. Otherwise it's like two sideways passes, a through ball and you're getting ripped to shreds. The other team has a breakaway. That's basically impossible to recreate in international soccer. Cause these teams mm-hmm. play maybe 10 games a year. So they just can't practice as much. So I feel like the world cup is going to look like a hybrid between this, like pressing era and this, like not quite the shit on the stick era, but that more kind of possession focused <laughs> era. Some of us are still in our shit on a stick era, yes. our yes, flop era. Absolutely. <laughs> um, the United States plays how? So they have tried to play this pressing style that um, is very hard to pull off. Um, the teams that have sort of pulled it off are Spain and Germany in the past, 
who basically just had Barcelona's entire starting 11 and then uh, Bayern Munich's entire starting 11. So it was much easier. The U.S. has uh, Tim Ream and Anthony Robinson play together at Fulham. And then uh, Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson play together at Leeds. That's that's the, that's it in terms of the connection. And Berhalter, Greg Berhalter, the coach, has talked about wanting to play this way. Um, and it's funny because a lot of the U.S.'s best games in qualifying were games where they didn't do that like where they played Mexico and Mexico kind of didn't allow them to press. And then they just defended a little deeper and counterattacked into space, which is kind of the classic underdog strategy that has worked for a hundred years. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see if, cause you know, we can look at how the U S has played in qualifying, but they're playing Panama, Costa Rica, you know, teams that they're more talented in, more talented than right in the world cup the talent level changes. So you can only establish your style so much. So I think there's a world where potentially like the U S is incapable of playing this pressing style and it actually makes the team better. Wow. Okay. Are we good? Because <laughs> the, the thing is, it, it's so uh, many, it's, it felt more linear. There used to be more carryover from one world cup to the next, because there was no competition for spots, frankly. You know, and, and you look at the 06, 2010, 2014, like we knew what the core was. We knew who the best player was at all times. And I think we know who the best player is now um, just because of the club that they play on. Um, but I, I also think that there's just there's more competition for spots. There's more, more guys over in Europe who are doing different things. Um, it felt it feels better um, to have guys where you're saying, OK, these guys play on, on some of the biggest clubs in the world versus this guy's playing for the San Jose Earthquakes and he's our best player. Um, but could, just what's the talent level? I mean, so right now, uh, I'm looking at the odds. They have the same odds as Mexico and Ecuador. Uh, Senegal is favored more than them. And the U.S. has uh, Poland is also on the same odds as Mexico and Ecuador. And then we're better than Canada, Wales, Morocco, Cameroon, that type of team, South Korea, that type of team. Um, where, where are we? Is that fair? Yeah. So I think like most of the people that have tried to do like team strength ratings, let's say for soccer, the yeah. U S just comes out as like the 16th best team in the world cup, which is like the most boring answer possible when you ask, are they good? Cause if you're the 16th best team, you're like, you should expect to get out of your group, but also it's three games and soccer is incredibly random. So like, there's actually a very high probability that mm -hmm. you don't get out of your group. But the thing that's interesting with international soccer in general, but especially with the U.S., right, is that the U.S. has this kind of generation of guys that are playing for Champions League teams or teams in the Premier League. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, it's mostly guys that play for these European teams but are like 21 and barely play, guys that play in like Turkey and mm -hmm. the Netherlands, and then guys in MLS. So there's a big drop-off in a way that like, even if like Harry Kane, England's best striker, if he got hurt, like they could still win the World Cup, you know, because they're going to have another Premier League striker behind them. And so the U.S. has basically like these kind of core five guys. It's Serginho mm -hmm. Dest, who plays for AC Milan now. Um, Tyler Adams played for Red Bull Leipzig, now plays for Leeds. Weston McKinney plays for Juventus. Gio Reyna plays for Borussia Dortmund. Claudio Reyna's son. And then Christian Pulisic, mm -hmm. um, who plays for Chelsea. They've never played a full competitive soccer game together at any point because oh, cool. one, of, one of them is always injured. So that was like a big downside for the U.S. coming into the tournament, right? It's like Pulisic and Reyna could get injured, right? And then you're, you're screwed. Like Sadio Mane just got injured, won't be playing for Senegal. That's going to drop them off on those odds you mentioned. But they're all healthy. So they're all conceivably going to start the first game 
against Wales, which should raise the team's ceiling, you would think, above the 16th team if like their performances without these guys graded them out as number 16. But it also raises the question of they've never played together like in a game, so that might not be great either. So it's actually, I think it's actually going to be kind of fascinating to see how it goes with all of them on the field together. So what you're saying, Ronick, you can come in here and interrupt if, if, if I've read this wrong. What you're saying is that our ceiling is so high that, that we should probably win the World Cup. Yes. Yes. Put it on a quote card. Saying. Our ceiling is high. We've never had that core together. Once they get together, boom, we're England, we're Italy, we're Spain. We're, we're above those yeah. teams. Everyone's talking about how Argentina is undefeated in 36 games currently. The U.S. has never lost with those six players. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. Speaking of, of Argentina, they are not the favorites. Brazil are the favorites. I don't know. Um, I mean, there's there's so much with Brazil and Argentina. France, obviously, is plus 600. England, plus 800. Spain, 8-1. to one, And then Germany behind that. Um, is there a team at the top that you think is, is undervalued or we're not talking about enough? Or, or is this pretty fairly pegged at this point? I think it's probably pretty fairly pegged just because so much money is going into it. But I guess so much money is going into it that then invites some some stupid money, I guess, to skew the odds. I think, I mean, I guess I would say Germany, like if we're saying the U.S. has a ceiling to win the World Cup, right. Germany has the ceiling to conquer the universe, I guess, I guess <laughs> I would say. We have to raise it above that because they're, you know, their coach is Hansi Flick, who's the was the Bayern yeah. Munich coach. And most national team coaches aren't at the level of club coaches because it's a way worse job for all the reasons I described earlier and it's pays less. He just happens to be coaching Germany and like if they're if there's going to be one team that can pull off the club style that I mentioned it's probably Germany. So I think they have a super high ceiling but also an incredibly low floor um which I would probably bump them up in those in my my standing I've seen a lot of you know people that have tried to like quantify the talent on the team say Germany has the second best talent pool behind Brazil. So I think I would bump probably bump them up a little bit. And I obviously I think Argentina can definitely win, but I feel like the the idea of Messi winning has like created this collective hive mind where we're now like this is the second best team. And Messi himself just said like our, we're like the fourth or fifth favorites. He named like all the other teams that he thought were better. So I think they might be a little overvalued as much as it would be kind of an incredible way for Messi to end his career. I'm going to ask a stupid question because I, I genuinely want to know the answer. Is Messi the best player in the world? So last year, no, he was not. He had sort of the first down year of his career, which was still, I would say, better than 99% of soccer players ever have produced. But he he's kind of, he's known as the best finisher of all time. Like he's the best at kicking a soccer ball. If you read net gains, you know, like kicking a soccer ball is not the main driver behind scoring. But we don't need to get into that. But go purchase the book, please. Um, maybe I'll send you a quarter zip with it. I should have <laughs> that on, on the air. Um, but he had a finishing slump last year. So scored, I think he scored like 10 goals and his expected goals, which kind of was better predicting it was much higher than that. And he just kind of looked old for the first time. Mm-hmm. But he also was playing with PSG for the first time. Also seemed to be have a little bit of potentially a long COVID situation and didn't really like didn't seem himself this year he's been a god basically he's like the he he's the only player i think in europe with at least 10 goals and 10 assists he's also as he's gotten older he's dropped a lot deeper into kind of more of like a orchestrator role and he lets the other people do the running and then he somehow 
also gets involved in the penalty area. So I, I, we did rankings for ESPN and I had Messi as number one on my ballot. Cause he's like, looks, it looks like he's locked in and he said, he's openly said, I have no idea what's going to happen after the world cup. Like he's very focused on the world cup and is like totally in shape, like flying. And it, I think it showed itself the first half of the year, whether he could maintain this for a full season at age 34 or 35, 37. He's a year older than me. I don't know how old I am. Um, he is 35 years old. So, and Argentina is built like they have gotten rid of all the guys that came up with Messi other than Di Maria. And it's a lot of these fast athletic guys and they like let Messi drop deep and hit long balls to all of them. So their style of play makes a lot of sense too. Um, so by checking out for like all of last year, you actually, you, it kept you to have the right, uh, perception of Messi. You like missed out on the bad year. Load management. He's load managing. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's it. A year, year long load management. God, I, I, I would love it. I mean, I'm not, I don't actually don't have a dog in the fight between Ronaldo and, and Messi. I, I really don't care. Um, I just, I like watching them both. I've never had a huge affinity for either one. I have, they haven't played for any of the teams I support. I don't really hate Manchester United that much. Um, even in the England sort of pecking order, it's like, it's like whatever. Um, but it would be great to see Messi win a world cup. Um, I feel like the vibes are off on this world cup, buddy. Like I, I just, yeah. I hate. So for yep. me, I, it's not just, it's not just the fact that it's during football season. That's just a, a very localized problem. It's not just that over the, over the world, it's interrupting a lot of domestic leagues. It's also just like one of the best things, especially in our hemisphere, was just going to a bar and saying, okay, it's it's summer, it's it's warm, let's do this. And I know that's a very American-centric, very Eurocentric thing. Um, but you know, I, I there there was a huge World Cup culture within the NFL because of the rhythms of it, where it's like it basically overlaps with the beginning of OTAs, and then the month you have off for for you know for for thirty days straight is is in that time period. So like everybody loved it. I love it. I mean, the World Cup was just so so amazing, and you know you you hear all of these stories. I have a friend who's from England who said that his favorite World Cup was in. When it was in Asia, because people would just stay out when it was Korea, Japan in 2002, because people would just stay out drinking and then just watch the games when they were on like 3 a.m. and just keep drinking. So like 12 hours of drinking, like having it in the summer works for the entire world. Um, how do you think the fact that this is happening in the middle of a domestic season is going to change anything? I mean, it looks like you could say, I mean, I guess you could say injury concerns are, are more, but you always have sort of end of season injuries anyway in the summer. But how does this change things? Yeah, I think the whole injury thing is a little overblown. Um you know, there's uh, plenty of reasons to be critical of this World Cup. Um, but like, you know, Sadio Mane, as I said, just got in or just was ruled out. Players get injured in, and Christopher Nkuku, a striker for, uh, forward for France, just got injured at their training camp. This happens all the time. And in my like, I think, I don't know, you're probably more likely to get injured when you have a full season of load on your legs as opposed to coming in halfway through the season. But like, so, so since COVID, the they're the effects on the schedule haven't shaken out yet because COVID pushed the season back. Then we had the Euros and now we have the World Cup. So And with the World Cup, they smushed all the Champions League games into like a two-month-long stretch. So all the big teams basically played two games a week um, after like a two years of playing all the time. So I think like, I think the stat is like two or three World Cups ago, there was like one player 
who had played 5,000 minutes, which the players union kind of looks at as like the red line for number of minutes coming into a world cup coming into this, there's going to be like 50 dudes that have played uh, 5,000 minutes. And so if you want to like use that to handicap or assess the world cup, most of those guys play for the best teams, right? So like the players on the best teams at the world cup are potentially going to be more tired, which I think the, I think, kind of lends itself to potentially some more weird stuff happening, maybe an underdog. It's still shocking to me that only seven countries have like won the World Cup, given that it's like a seven-game tournament and it's an incredibly random sport. So I think we're probably, like, I'm just way less confident in any prediction I would make about this World Cup because of the weird nature of it being, you know, they literally ended the season last weekend. It's not like they gave them like a couple weeks off. They didn't even end anything. It's just taking a little yeah. break to play the biggest yes. tournament in the world. I will yes. say this. The eighth team is about to win the World Cup. You already said it. It's the United States of America. Um, yeah. Give me your finals prediction. Give me your final and your winner. Okay, and, so and, dark, and, you all, and, and this is always like this is the British template, too. You have to give yeah. the Dark Horse team, too. Yeah. My favorite thing was everyone's Dark Horse at Euro 2020 was Turkey. And then they ended up being the worst team in the tournament. So, Dude, that's why they're uh, a Dark Horse, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The ultimate true. Dark Horse. They're the worst <laughs> team in the true. world. It's true. So I picked every game um, for ESPN. And after doing that, I ended up with Brazil versus Germany. Um, I don't know, Brazil, you said they're the favorite, but oh, they're cool. kind of like, yeah, uh, really, I'm going out on a limb there. Um, but I think Germany, as you said, right, was what, seventh in the odds? Mm-hmm. Um, so one versus seven, you have a nice little storyline of Germany beat the crap out of Brazil 7 1 um, in Brazil in the semi- semis in 2014. Um, so there'll there'll be a nice little revenge storyline there. So those are the two. Um, and I think Brazil wins, uh, they're, they've been the best national team in the world during this stretch where they haven't won anything. Um, so people don't realize. So I think they'll finally, I mean, you know, 20% chance I give them or something like that. I wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, stake my life on it, but that would be my pick. And then dark horse, uh, we'll go with Denmark. Um, Denmark made the semis of the last of the euros after their best player, Christian Eriksen, almost died on the field. Christian Eriksen is back and mm-hmm. he'll be playing. They lost in the semis at Wembley to England. So that was kind of a, a weird home field advantage situation that they're not going to face. And a lot of stuff in my book, a lot of the advancements in terms of being better at set pieces and stuff like that kind of originated in Denmark. So I think in terms of the most innovative national team, I think Denmark is right up there. So um, I think they can make a run. The book is Net Gains. The author is Ryan O'Hanlon. That was awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me.